0: Even more incestuous, if you realise that the main organiser of the event was Amanda Ross, who's had granddaughter. From my childhood and youth, I've got very fond memories of my grandmother, a Brisbane girl. She was a very nice old lady who used to take us out to the zoo and other albums like that. One of the last memories I have of my grandmother was when she was living in Brisbane here for a while with her sister at Yeronga Pillay, not far, actually, from where Egan was born. I was in Armidale at the time, and I drove up to Brisbane to take my grandmother out to the Festival Hall to hear Paul ropes and sing, as in the late 50s. <coughs> as I say, fond memory? But I didn't know Robert Samuel Ross at all, because he died within a few months of my birth throughout my childhood and youth. It was a revered name, really a name that was revered and associated with political events and political attitudes. And that was all. So it wouldn't be surprising if I'd be very interested in reading a biography of Robert Samuel Ross. There's no reason for you to be interested in reading one, of course, unless you were interested in biography as such. However, Edgar has not written a biography of his father. The book is accurately titled, A Case Study. In my um, life as an educationist, I meet lots of case studies. Now, well, well, case study is a a very popular way of of doing research into education Mm -hmm. these days. And a well-written case study is very interesting to read. But I know very well that one of the major problems with case studies is that frequently they contain nothing that is generalizable. That is, there's no message for anything other than that particular case. Now, if this book were one of those case studies, again, some of you might be interested in reading it, but it wouldn't have been written by Edgar Ross. When Edgar Ross writes something, it has a message, and the message there, their claim
1: for you to see. Well, what
0: is the message? The price of was falling in 1891. The men who owned the acres saw something must be done. We will break the shearer's union and show when our stares still They'll take the turns we give them or we'll find the A few years ago, sitting in a meeting in the height of the dispute around the electricity supply workers, it suddenly occurred to me, listening to the speeches, that that song, which you've just heard the first stanza, written about the shearers' disputes in the early 1890s, it occurred to me that that song might well form the theme song for the secret dispute. Edgar, of course, is more likely to relate the song to the miners dispute in 1949, so I guess he'll be saying something about that later when he comes to talk a little bit about the true believers. In fact, as I say, it was at the height of the secret dispute that that thought occurred to
1: me Subsequent events suggested that the song might have been even more appropriate than was obvious at the
0: time. Those of you who know the song will know that it finishes like this.
1: Then if Norgenthau and Gatlin
0: can't bring you to your knees, we'll find a all the squatters set that's meant for times like To that song to the present volume is that that dispute formed the background to a lot of the early part of this case study this case study that deals with the formative years of the formation of the labor movement and the left industrial and political movement in australia well back to the message in the book let me read you two quotes here's the first the lesson of universal history the teaching of universal experience is that union is strength. When the people have been united, they have won. When they've been divided, they have lost. The people's own credulity, ignorance, servility, division have enabled the robber classes to triumph in the days are gone and today. All countries have had their working-class revol- revolts. All have seen the masses hindered and driven back by internal disagreement, disorder and disunion. All countries have seen the ruling class dominant and all-powerful because it has stood solidified in protecting vested interests. The few have unceasingly held in bondage the many. The people's struggles for better conditions, for liberty and life, have been alone successful to the extent the struggles have been united. efforts. Hence the new commandment, thou shalt not be divided. There are at hand incidents and events, conditions and politics, passionate protests and overwhelming meetings, men and traitors, all providing the feasts for literary tales as fascinating and profitable to Australians as the notable revolutions of all and older lands to their prosperity. Identified with these events and their times are the extraordinarily captivating background and associations of golden nuggets unparalleled in, parallel in the world's exploits, Digger's Hunts as damnably realistic as romantically potential, picturesque personalities arraigned for sedition and high treason, felons with a price on their head reaching the gilded seats of parliament, a police, as always, crushing a people, a great flag flying as emblem of republicanism, conflict of classes and masses ending in the foundations of Australian democracy, direct action as creator of political action, all this and more as magical manufactory of the stockade everlasting, whose builders marched in a deathless army, you may hear them singing in defence of their stockade. I don't have the tunes, so I'm not going to sing. It teaches the secret of manhood, is the watchword of those who aspire, that men must follow freedom, though it lead through blood and fire. That's the first of them Here's the second one. History is rich in its lessons for the working class. It tells of the victories of unity and the defeats through disunity, of the triumph of the principle of an injury to one is an injury to all that tells of the apathy and conservatism that can follow in the wake of unionism becoming a formal thing with compulsory membership in the absence of education to combat illusions and show the need for class consciousness that tells of the ferocity of the workers' enemies with the state intervening whenever necessary in support of the employers mercilessly in its crushing of unionism and persecution of its leaders in any situation wherein the latter had their backs to the wall History too lays bare the tremendous pressures of the capitalist system to adapt union policies to the perpetuation of the system and indeed to the immediate interests of the employers with attractive offers for personal advancement to any prepared to abandon union principles for a role in the capitalist establishment. There is food for sobering thought and the shedding of illusions in the large number of industrial militants who graduate into pillars of the capitalist system in politics, the judiciary, and the council of the employers. In blunt working-class language, who sold out. <laughs> no, they're not quotes from the book. In fact, you probably realise that they're two different authors. One of the things that always intrigues me about the first author, who is the subject of the present book, the first author, Robert Samuel Ross, writing towards the end of his little book, (coughs) Eureka, Freedom's Fight of 54. And I say one of the things that's always intrigued me about Robert Samuel's writing is the flowery and rhetorical nature of, of the writing. He wrote for most of his life for the working class, for the trade unions, so that that language was obviously acceptable. Times change.
2: The second quote was from Edgar's History of the Miners' Federation
0: over 50 years later. Times change, but the message remains the same. Edgar summed that message up very briefly in his introduction to his little book of essays of Storm and Struggle, where he says, history helps to explain present day problems, mistakes to be avoided in meeting them, provides inspiration to continue with the good work and guidance in charting the course ahead. Indeed, it has been well said any movement that ignores its past has no future. As an aside, um, that little book of essays could well be the case study of Edgar Ross's life. And as a trivial aside, the titles of the two books indicate that Edgar, in common with his father, had a great love of quotations. Well, back to the book. The book which deals with, as I said earlier, the formative period, the events around, the the formative events in the period which forged the Australian working class movement, the Australian industrial and political left. The book that deals with the conflicts and confusions that lead, inevitably, to the disunity that Robert Samuel Ross spent most of his life fighting against and that breaks his new commandment. (laughs) The conflicts and confusions, not only among the various socialist groups that came and went throughout that period, but conflicts and confusions in the man himself, as Edgar points out in the book. A man who, to the end of his days, saw the Labour Party as the instrument for social change, the instrument through which we would achieve Socialism. Through all of his disillusionment, he clung to that ideal. But it was a rather different Labour Party, a Labour Party that incorporated the Communists, that his son has joined. I, like Edgar in the book, in the last chapter of the book, wonder whether Robert Samuel Ross would have been able to maintain that stance 50 years later. I'm very pleased to be here and I commend the book to you. Thank you,
2: Chairman, Dr. friends, and any <laughs> others, uh, thanks for coming.
1: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: While I'm in a mood to thank, I would like to. Thank few all, people. I'd like to publicly acknowledge firstly of the services rendered by my wife in essential backup in the handling of the problems associated with the publication of the book and in wrestling with the scriptwriters of the television series the True of the Leaders of whom I'll be saying something later. I also want to thank our granddaughter, Amanda, who has played the main part in the organising of this function, and Phil and the rest of (coughs) her friends. So you see, it is very much a Ross show. And it's not surprising that there has already been some confusion in this uh, regard. Uh, Dr. Ross refers to have incestuous. Well, uh, the Ross family, I'll have you know, has been very important in Queensland. For instance, I extended to it the privilege of being my birthplace. (laughs) Dr. Ross, I understand, uh, assists to keep the Griffith University on an even keel. His daughter is a student activist of the rival University over at Solution. As for my father, you know, he won a prize for diligence and good conduct, at the South Brisbane Baptist Sunday School,
1: <laughs>
2: he was also secretary of the Junior Cricket Association of Brisbane and the Junior Football Association. And he caused one hell of a row when he raised the question that sport should be on a electoral basis but to turn to less matters, <laughs> He was a member of the first socialist groups set up in Australia in 1887, Was an early member of the Australian Labor Party in Britain. But early on, he moved to that city, described by the famous writer C.J. Dennis, as the city of Silver, Sin, and Sixth and the Eighth, legendary Broken Hill. There he became editor of the Miner's Paper Barrier Truth. He didn't last long. He left his employment after a campaign launched by a united front of the Roman Catholic hierarchy and the Protestant Ministerial Association campaign was waged against him. You won't believe this, but I'll swear it's true on a stack of bibles. <laughs> <laughs> the campaign against him was that he supported the holding of political meetings on a Sunday. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it home. Also, in his paper, he advocated the sinful practice of contraception, birth control. <laughs> A far cry indeed, I suggest, from the days of gong gong vending machines. <laughs> <laughs> However, he got another job as city valuer at Broken Hill. Well, I can assure you that he could handle figures about as well as his son can, and that's like something. Also, he became acting check inspector on the mines. <coughs> this is the official who polices the mines from a safety and health point of view, taking dust counts, uh, monitoring the presence of gases in the like. Well, again, I can assure you that the most intricate techn- technology for which he was capable <coughs> of handling was a pen again like his son but however he did have a good deal of talent in other ways and that was revealed when the family shifted (coughs) to Melbourne and he became secretary of the Victorian Socialist Party and in Victoria he became a very prominent figure indeed in the labour movement for the rest of his life propagandist educator, organiser, writer, public speaker, he had the lot. As I say, he was Secretary of the Victorian Socialist Party, which was an extraordinary sort of evangelical, (coughs) atheistic party, which set out to provide services for everybody from cradle to grave. He had ten commandments of social, like be courteous to all men, other good men bow down to none. Remember that all the good things of the earth are produced by labour. Whoever enjoys them without working for them is stealing the bread of the workers. And he began to apply his socialist principles. He started a cooperative bookshop, a cooperative bakery, a cooperative bookshop. Don't ask me to explain how these particular enterprises earned his attention, but they did. He, as Secretary of the Victorian Socialist Party, also edited its paper and produced a pungent periodical of his own called Ross's Magazine. You can see a copy of it over at the table. He wrote for every trade union paper in Australia. He became Vice President of the Victorian branch of the Labour Party, a member of the founding executive of the ACTU, he was also on the Board of Trustees of the National Art Gallery, on the Council of the Melbourne University, and the Commissioner for the State Savings Bank, quite a figure in the life of Victoria. Well, what about his son? Well, for those who don't know me, finally pub-crawling crazy fanatic (laughs) that you saw in the true believers. Forever mouthing fiery phrases, plotting revolution, and so on. Well, with all due disrespect to Mr. Bob Ellis and his team, I'm not like that at all. Matter of fact, uh, I had a reputation, you know, of being a bit of a jurist when I worked for the My Girls generation. But in the true believers, I'm not without a pot of beer in my hand every time I appear, generally using the language. The us had taken the trouble, or had the decency or courtesy, you come and see me he might have discovered quite a different kind of person. But he didn't do that. He did ring the Miner's Federation office and spoke to a woman called Nori Hewitt who worked with the Uncommon Cause. And this particular member of the team wanted to know what a trade union office was like, what the atmosphere was like didn't ask anything about me, what she thought of me, or the minor officials who appeared in the True Believers. In fact, about the only result of this interview was the epic discovery that while I was pounding my typewriter, I always wore an eye shaper. They didn't even get the colour right. <laughs> in fact, they never got anything very right at all. True believers have been called the true receivers. Santa Maria, my friend the enemy, complained and said that the correct title for the true believers should be The Raving Lunatics. I'm inclined to agree with that. Only office that I've worked in in the life, Santa Maria complained that in his office they had a painting of a medieval interpretation of the Virgin Mary which you was also going a bit far.
1: <laughs> but as I
2: say, they really didn't get anything very right at all through believers. believers. They claim to give a truthful account of the dramatic events in the decade following the Second World War highlighted by the coal miner strike of 1949, the so-called Red Bill, and the Petroff Commission. They completely distorted each one. Right? Starting with the last first, they didn't even report the findings of the Commission, which I suggest had its significance because the findings were nil. The Petrov Commission, contrary to the high expectations of it, didn't find a single spy, didn't find any evidence of treasonable activity. <clears throat> in fact, it was almost a non-event. The only thing, in fact, that it had spe- achieved really was to smear Dr. Ebbett. Dr. Ebbett was a brilliant intellect with an international reputation and made him out to be a blithering idiot but the worst example was the one which i was so closely associated with the coal strike of 1949 they declared that the coal strike was a communist conspiracy well of course this shouldn't surprise us shouldn't Since time immemorial, as we might say, every major working class action has been attributed to agitators, they've been red-raggers, shin-fainers, wobblies, balshies, commos, (laughs) all the rest. You know, uh, I was interested that Bob selected the the beautiful ballad by Helen Palmer on the 91 strike. Do you know that that strike, they used those exact words, communist conspiracy, to explain that strike. The coal strike was a, if I might employ that rather overused word, classic. Classic example (coughs) of an industrial struggle in the pattern of the many struggles punctuated the history of the miners of Australia. It was fought around the issues of long-service league and the 35-hour week. But you know, the coal strike was really a defensive action. It was a defensive action against the gathering offensive by the employers. The employers had sent out their decree that the drive of the working people for improved conditions promised to them as a reward for their wartime service had to be halted. In fact, the trend had to be reversed. (coughs) The Metal Trades Employers Federation, which was regarded as a pacemaker for the Australian employers, called for the reintroduction of the 48-hour week and a return on wages to pre war level. The offensive was on long before the Coal Strike. There was a strike at Port Kemper, the Port Kemper Steelworks, precipitated by the BHP as an anti-union action. There had been a big strike in Brisbane, in the course of which the Communist barrister Fred Patterson was battened by police and hospitalised. Trade Union officials had been jailed, like Jack McPhillips of the Iron Workers Union, for the mildest of comments about the Arbitration Court. Leading Communists had been framed on trumped-up charges. The General Secretary of the Communist Party, Sharkey, had been charged and subsequently jailed. As was the manager of the Communist Party's Workers' Weekly. Then there was the notorious case of Diver Dobson. Dobson was an official of the Clarks Union. He crawled out of Sydney Harbour one night saying that he'd been thrown off a Manly Ferry by Communists intending to drown him.
1: Subsequently, he confessed
2: that the whole thing was just a stunt to highlight, as he said, the communist menace. It was established that Doug Robinson had links with Australian intelligence and American intelligence and with the head of the Catholic Church, Gilroy because he was active in an organization called the Industrial Groups, which set up to obey the dictates of the leading employers of Australia (coughs) to tame the trade union movement. Militant influences had to be removed from the unions. They were specified. Not only the Miners Federation, the Waterside Workers Federation, and the Seamen's Union. That was the atmosphere before the Cold Strike. Far from being a communist conspiracy, the Cold Strike of 1949 was discussed by the leader of the Communist Party and they counselled against it. Far from precipitating a strike to bring down the Chippenney government, the Miners Federation in fact negotiated for <laughs> a banner calling for support for the Left Book Club in, in a mayday Day procession. So I attempted to use my good offices with Neville to work out a deal to stop the coal strike, prevent it. The deal was that the employers would agree to accept a 35-hour week in principle not to be implemented until all parties to the industry were agreed that coal production was meeting demand. This was the proposal of the ACDU. What was Neville's reply? No deal, Edgar. Chiff is determined to pull you on. In fact, Chifley had told the Labour caucus the Reds must be taught a lesson. Chifley could have stopped the coal strike by raising his little finger. Instead, he presented a clenched fist <coughs> and said, it's boots and all. And the boots began to be put in to the miners of Australia. Some of this is revealed in the true believers, but not all, they play it down. The measures adopted by the Chipley Labor government to defeat the coal miners of Australia consisted in the most draconic measures ever used to break a strike in Australian history.
1: (coughs) Even the Sydney Morning
2: Herald said it was the first time that an actual tactic of starvation Starving the miners and their families was used. It was used by the Chipley Labor Government doing the bidding of the employers. It was the Chipley Government which politicized the strike, not the miners. But, uh, one or two words about my own role. The true believers presents me as the main instigator of the strike. Apart from being a somewhat absurd promotion, this was also an insult to the thousands of mine workers who in the biggest vote in history decided to go on strike. <coughs> you see, the coal owners had entered into a period of intense rationalisation, mechanisation. The Coal Board itself said, when our mechanization program is fulfilled, the majority of the mines in New South Wales will be closed as uneconomic. And the 35-hour week was put forward in an attempt to cushion the devastating effects that this would have on employment and the decimation of the coalfields community. But as for my own position the scriptwriters were really intrigued by the fact that here were two brothers on opposite ends of the political spectrum. And they really got carried away with it. They concocted three scenes which allegedly took place in our home, in which Brother Lloyd was trying to get me to give up my evil ways and return to the path of rectitude. That wasn't so bad. (laughs) But they had my wife on his side (laughs) trying to convince me on this matter. Well, let me say about my wife. She's a, a minor daughter. She supported the struggle of the miners all her life since she helped to raise funds for the big miners strike in Burken Hill 19, 1920, when by the way they won the 35-hour week 30 years before. Is it surprising that the coal miners were saying it's time we vote? But Mr. Gallagher said the basket is now empty. No oh, use coming back to me for further improvements. But to return to these scenes my <coughs> own. So incredible were they, I suggest far exceeding artistic license. Far incredible that I was inclined to bring them with deriving laughter. But Tessa, my wife, was stopping mad, and you blame her? Well then they added a the fourth scene during the Red Bill, when they had me terrified at the idea of being put into a concentration camp, burning my books, my wife crying, and both of us pleading to my brother to help save our kids. <coughs> this kid was then 19. <laughs> His sister was 16. I suggest well able to look after themselves anyhow. But uh, that was the story of the Red Bell. Matter of fact, I played quite a part in the campaign against this <coughs> measure of Menzies. Included in this, I recited a poem in the Sydney Domain, which started, I declare you, Mr. Menzies, because he'd said he was going to declare me. And I called him a swine, a poney. I took them before the court and fined me two quid for using unseemly language in a public place. (laughs) But to return to this scene, the scriptwriter's really got down into the gutter when they had my brother saying, what you are doing is enough to make your father turn his brain. Which brings me to the book, no. <laughs> <laughs> Read the book and you'll see something about the relationship that existed between my father and myself. But as uh, Bob has pointed out, the book is more than a personal record, it's a book with a message. The book traces in outline form the history of the Labour movement. The socialist groups, and to particularly the Labour Party. And the record is a very revealing one. It shows that while the Labour Party in government has been responsible for social reforms at every crucial period in history where it's had to decide on which side it was, the employers or the workers, it's been on the wrong side. New South Wales Labour Party fought an election. I promised to nationalise the coal industry and to start a state-owned steelworks. It won the election. Did it nationalise the coal industry? No way. Did it start a state-owned steelworks? No way. On the contrary, it gave all the money necessary and all the legal authority to the BHP, the start of Steelworks, and it was on, as you know, to become the number one monopoly in Australia. When the First World War, the Labour Party, like other Labour parties throughout the world, had said that the war being prepared was a reactionary war, that the socialists of the world should oppose it, and even go further. They should use the situation created by the war to further the cause of socialism. But the Labor government in Australia, on the contrary, <coughs> supported the war and began to suppress everybody who was opposed to it, including my father. Looking back, he seems to have been in and out of jail for most of the time. A symbol of resistance to the war was the flying of the red flag. So he'd fly the red flag, he'd be put into jail, he'd come out again and fly it again, back again into jail. A recent book has been written by someone of am pleased to say is with us tonight, Ray Evans of the Queensland University, that the red flag riots in Brisbane. They were in every city. I say this was the symbol of, of resistance. <coughs> I can remember visiting my father in jail. They had him in the condemned cell. You could see up through the window of the gallows. In Melbourne. Nevertheless, I'd have to say I didn't treat him too badly. Matter of fact, he used to have philosophical discussions with the governor of jail. When a dear friend of his, by the name of Frank Hyatt, who was Secretary of the Railways Union, died, and then he went out to attend the funeral. He went and attended a the funeral and knocked on the door when the funeral was over and got back into jail. <laughs> During the war of course, things were very hectic in, in in that period, in his magazine, he what you would call led with his chin. For instance, here's a verse that he had in Ross's magazine. God straffed England. God save the king. God this, God that, God the other thing. God heard the embattled nation shout. Good God, said God, I've got my word cut out. <laughs> <laughs> so it was hardly a wonder that he was all before the court on the charge of blasphemy, and and the fact he was sentenced to six months for blasphemy was reduced to a fine on, on a field. Well, then passing on, of course, we come to the Great Depression. At the outset of the Depression, the Prime Minister, Jimmy Scullin, said that there be, must be no sacrifice as far as the workers' wages are and as a result of the depression. But nevertheless, the Labor government organised the reduction of wages across <laughs> the board, as they say. There was a big lockout in the northern coal fields when the miners rejected a proposal that they take a 12.5% cut in pay, and the Labor Party fought an election on the slogan, Vote! Labour and open the mines and prosecute John Brown. John Brown being the head of the coal owners. The Labour Party won the elections. The mines remained closed. John Brown didn't even get a rap over the knuckle. Well, we can continue the story, of course, to the present day, I suggest. Where we have a government <coughs> which has torn up its own platform I bought a copy from the office. Labor's rules and platform contains statements like this. Labor's key objectives are the protection of Australia's national sovereignty through increased Australian ownership and control of our industry. Labor is committed to the maintenance of the Australian public sector we totally reject conservative proposals of privatization of public enterprises and services. <coughs> Labor recognizes the enormous economic power of foreign-based transnational corporations, which may have interests contrary to those of Labor in the nation, and that where these vested interests conflict with the national interest, they will be resistant. I suggest to you that the Labor government today with its policy of deregulation, its strengthening of the private sector as against the public sector, has meant that this government, this country is virtually being run today by these vast transnational enterprises and their banks. But enough, back to the board. I suggest that the book offers an explanation for all this. An explanation why Labor governments behave as they do when confronted with major working class actions. Why they behave as they do when crucial periods occur in the nation. (laughs) This this book, as I said, traces the origins and development of the Labor movement we should always remind ourselves and remind others that contrary to the viewpoint of many historians, the Labour Party was formed largely on the inspiration of socialists. In fact, most of the first politicians (laughs) regarded themselves as socialists boldly proclaim their support of socialism. Conference after conference of the Labor Party since the turn of the century has affirmed and reaffirmed the objective of the socialization of industry. Andrew Fisher, elected from the miners' constituency of Gympie, when he was elected Prime Minister said, now we are all socialists. And he outlined a program in his first speech for the transition to socialism. The early socialist groups of this country, in fact, were the training ground for Prime Ministers, Labour Premiers, members of Labour Governments. In Brisbane, It was an organisation called the Social Democratic Vanguard. One of its members was a fellow called Jim Dewey, who became Premier of New South Wales, Labour Premier. Another Labour Premier was W.A. Holman, who was a member of the Australian Socialist League in Sydney. Even the Billy Hughes was a member of the Australian Socialist League. But the most striking example of all was provided by the Victorian Socialist Party. You know that it turned out two Labor Prime Ministers, Jimmy Scullin and John Curtin, three state Labor Premiers, John Kane, father of the present incumbent, John Gunn, South Australia, and last but not least, Robert Heffron, friend of New South Wales. In fact, Bob Heffern, as was the custom in the Victorian Social Party, had his first child baptized into the secular religious of socialism on a red cushion with a little red flag in her hand <laughs> dedicated to the cause of socialism.
0: That the years
2: afterwards the militant leader of the Teachers' Federation got to know of this when Hepburn was Minister for Education. Oh, my God, he said, lend it to me, Edgar, lend it to me, this report of this baptism. I'll confront him with it. <laughs> uh, Hepburn, of course, was a <coughs> tutor of the Communist Party before he became Labour Premier. But that was the position. Well, what happened? You see, this book, as Bob points out, is a case study. And its thesis is that the Labour Party formed under the inspiration of socialists, was on the other hand not a socialist party at all, but that it was a party of the capitalist establishment, and has been revealed to be such more and more with the passage of the years. But I hasten to add, this was not my father's position. As Bob has pointed out, my father devoted his life to furthering the drive towards a change of society on socialist lines. But he had his thesis too, and his thesis was Russia was all right. In fact he hailed the Russian Revolution, praised the Bolsheviks, supported the Soviet Union throughout his life, but he said the Russian method methodology, the <laughs> Russian methods were not applicable to Australia. He set out to find an Australian way to socialism. And as Bob has pointed out, he saw it as introduced by a Labour Party, backed by a powerful trade union movement, with an independent socialist party acting in a sort of Pressure with to keep it on the line. The ultimate point in the, all this was reached in 1921, when the Labor Party conference reaffirming the socialization objective, set up a Supreme Economic Council, was going to set up a Supreme Economic Council to run the country backed by a trade union movement organised on industrial lines into one big union. This was a concept. Mr Heffron, to whom I've already referred, said, we are now entering the period of a ten-year transition to socialism. The conference set up a council of action to organise for the implementation of this 10 years programme for socialism. Among its members was my father and also Juncker, who became Prime Minister of Australia. Well, why? Is my father's, was my father's thesis valid? Is it valid today? Buy my book <laughs> and judge for yourself because there's the record set out objectively. You agree with it? Objectively, <laughs> you read it and decide for your Well, what is the way forward? Is his concept valid? Here we are, friends, in a situation where we have a Labour government, to express it mildly, does not set any sort of perspective for a change in the social system. We have socialist parties in existence, a socialist movement, which alas, is not making as much impact today as it made 50 years ago even 60 years ago. I'm a member of the Socialist Party of Australia because I believe it has a soundest ideological position. But there's also the original Communist Party, there's the Socialist Workers Party, there's the Communist Party within brackets Marxist-Leninist, there's the Association for Communist Unity, There's the Rainbow Group in Southern Australia. There's the Charter Group. There are scores of others, all with their particular ideas on what to do the way forward. Well, I must indicate that this is beyond the scope of this sort of gathering. But uh, I do suggest again that this case study that my father has relevance for the polemics around these questions today. There are those in our midst who have turned their back on the socialist cause that they once espoused because they cannot face up to them the difficulties of this period, admittedly, are very great difficulties. They cannot face the setbacks that undoubtedly occurred, again, admittedly, very grave setbacks. They cannot face the problems that are obviously existing in the socialist sector of the world. And so they become opportunists or take refuge in spark Alec cynicism which leads them inexorably to the political right. My father was not like that. While disagreeing with his thesis, in favour of my own, I nevertheless had and have tremendous admiration for his dedication, courage, and talent. He never wavered in his dream, vision, goal, or what you would. He never wavered in his belief that eventually that goal would be reached while he came to realise that it was, as far as is concerned, a long way off, as it still is. In other words, he retained his faith that eventually these things shall be. A loftier race, an ere the world of known shall rise, with flames of freedom in their souls and the light of knowledge in their eyes. Nation with nation, land with land, a man shall live as comrades free, In every heart and brain shall throb the pulse of
1: one return. And I'd like to thank the speakers once again. Thank you Tom Ross and Edgar Ross, fast fascinating. And I'd also like to thank everybody for coming here, it's been a wonderful turn up. But I'd also like to inform you that if you'd like to stay and talk to both Edgar and Tessa Ross, they're very happy to talk to you afterwards. The most important of all, these things shall be selling over there for $19.95. Um, there are also, I think, some refreshments available, <laughs> not without And um, there are two more announcements that have been asked nice to tell you about. That's, um, you're all invited to the SPA's Sixth National Congress, international delegation from the CP of the Soviet Union. Uh, that's at Thursday and sixth of October in the Miscellaneous Workers the Union Building here. And also. Um, That's been sponsored by the SPA, social tools, and so So I'd like you once more to thank again Bob Ross and Edgar Ross. (laughs) (laughs) Edgar, in these introductory remarks,
0: commented on the support that my mother, his wife, gave me throughout the the development of the books, and, of course, read life up to then. And we have a small token from those of us who've been
1: involved, at least indirectly, small token for Tessa in appreciation.